You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And a very good afternoon to you all uh, here on Triple R. Geez, a chilly Sunday out there, I'm sure you've noticed. Uh, the headlines saying the chilliest uh, or the coldest morning in Melbourne for 18 years. Hope you're enjoying it. Maybe you're still stuck in bed. Relaxing in bed would be a good place to be. Matt Stedman is my name and uh, welcome to the afternoon here on Triple R. Looking around the studio, my usual partner in crime, my colleague, my friend Cameron Smith, not here today... But through the wonders of technology, if I just push this button here, hopefully live from a 44-gallon drum in central Bendigo. <laughs> what? Cam, where are you? I'm worried. <laughs> I love that. That's a, that's a good intro. Now, I'm sitting in some very, very bespoke furniture that is actually fashioned from uh, 44-gallon drums. I'm in Bendigo. I am at uh, the biggest uh, sheep and wool show in the Southern Hemisphere. Right. Um, and uh, I've been sort of living in this fabulous tent at the Bendigo Festival of Lamb for the last couple of days. Is it heated? And you think it was cold in <laughs> Melbourne, coldest day in 18 years. Oh, my Lord. I think it was about minus three this morning it's here. It's frosty. It's frosty. Yeah, frosty. Uh. Can we talk? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, totally frosty. But uh, I don't know. It's, mm. it's just a glorious day. It's not a... a no, there's not a cloud in the sky now. No, it's, it's, it's going to be... Yeah, so um, folks um, around Melbourne and uh, Victoria, get out there because it's uh, it's going to be an absolutely beautiful day. Mm. So, what so are you doing Bendigo. Yeah. Bendigo, my God, I've been coming up here for about four years and mm-hmm. it just seems to get better and better every year. From a uh, culinary point of view, there are, I think there's now 10 restaurants that are from Bendigo and around the regions mm. that are in the Age Good Food Guide, yes, you know, that barometer yes. of mm. of what is good and laudable to eat. Mm. And I can very much say we were lucky enough to uh, go to a place called Mason's last night. Yes, I've not been to um, Mason's, but I, I hear a lot of very good things about it. It's just amazing. I mean, this guy, um, Nick Anthony, who's the, the chef there, he's just so chilled out and he's so good at what he does. Um, we had... So many incredible courses there, mm. great cooking technique, and 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 really not that much more than what you would spend on a you know a pretty good counter meal. That's the thing about the regions. It, it, better go or elsewhere. You actually, you get a pretty good uh, meal, and the value is quite high because I mean they can't charge city prices. They don't really have to either. No, it's sort of, it's sort of, I mean it's not stupid stupid amounts. But mm. um, also I went to another place called the Woodhouse. Mm. Uh, which was just fantastic. Uh, beautiful, uh, what have we got? Red, a red gum grill. So, you know, the proteins that are cooked on that taste pretty dang good. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a very, very, like a, I think a 2008 Taltani Shiraz, oh, which. Stop it. That only cost about, I think that was. Tw- oh, actually, it might have been about eight bucks, I think. But, Get it. So, you know. Really? Awesome. There you go. Yeah. So, Bendigo. Um, it's great. It, it really, really is. And it is really nice to be part of, uh, I think I mentioned it last week, it sort of, it, it sort of feels like a real community event here. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, very, 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 very enjoyable. Well, we now, should probably let you go and do uh, your Bendigo stuff, but uh, the show today. Yes, uh, actually, before we go on to that, cause we don't often oh, of do this, but mm. um, I, I'd actually like to do a cheerio if I can. Go. The floor is cheerio. yours. Cheerio. Okay. Um, John Lawson. Uh, mm-hmm. A very well-known, much-loved, mm-hmm. respected chef, 
um, has been uh, having some some health issues, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, he was. Uh, we were uh, thinking that he was going to have uh, a procedure done over the weekend. Uh, that's been delayed. I just want to um, send uh, Triple R love uh, from the, the cooking community to him and, and wish him well. Yes. And a very, very speedy recovery. So I wanted to do that. And by way of introduction for what's going to happen for the rest of the show, yeah. spuds. It's a good time of year to be thinking about spuds, is it not? It is a good time of year to be thinking about spuds. And um, there was, is a book by a gentleman by the name of John Reader. And mm. John Reader wrote a book called The Propitious Esculent. Just um, say, say that somewhat, again, just for those of us who are a the, little bit slow on the uptake. The Propitious Esculent, mm. a somewhat preposterous title, but <laughs> an absolutely amazing read. Um, we did this interview that's quite a few years ago. I think it might be 2009. Right, yes. But, folks, the rest of the show is going to be devoted to the potato. And you think, well, how interesting can a potato be? Well, the potato has a unique sort of um, place in history. It talks uh, about politics. It talks about the dangers of monoculture. If we think of the Gort Moor or the uh, the Great Potato Famine, um, it is uh, it is a dish that has taken over the world. is ubiquitous, and yet a lot of us hardly even think about it. Mm. But uh, John did, and uh, we talk about it at length. Mercifully. Uh, Matt, you told me that you were able to find a midpoint so that people yes. can go and, and make themselves a cup of tea. We have a toilet break, yes. Yes, we do have a toilet break. But, uh, yeah, we t um, I talked to John, uh, to, yes, John in London mm -hmm. um, quite a few years ago, and that's pretty much uh, what the show is about, and I hope that people enjoy it. Well, we should let you get back to uh, your MC duties there in Bendigo, and uh, we'll be back to normal next week, but um, yeah, I guess uh, in the meantime, snuggle up somewhere warm with a cup of tea, and uh, we'll enjoy the rest of the show. And all hail the potato. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Matt. I have on the phone with me from good old London, England, a gentleman by the name of John Reader. And John Reader has written a most interesting history on a plant, it seems, whose ubiquity makes it, you'd have to say, almost invisible. A very, very good, well, where are we? I'm in the evening, you're in the morning, I'm in the autumn, you're in the spring. Hello. <laughs> good morning. I'm going to say good morning. I'm going to stick with what I've got outside the window. Uh, good morning, Cameron. I think that's right. I think um, most people in the English-speaking world and probably most people in Europe and descendants thereof have grown up taking the potato absolutely for granted. Um, it's, uh, in my own case, um, becoming conscious of food at all, I suppose, was during, uh, during the Second World War and just shortly thereafter. Um, and uh, the potato was something that so sat on the plate and soaked up the gravy, and if you were still hungry when you've eaten all the rest of it, then have another potato. There was always a words, potato. There was a filler. <laughs> there, was, there was always another spud left over, wasn't there? Oh, you can have another potato. There you go. But it's interesting the way that, first of all, the way this plant was domesticated, and one of the things that seems kind of strange is that someone would be able to find something edible from a plant that really is quite toxic, isn't it? 
Yes, well, that's. I wish I wish I'd been able to find a, an answer to that, but one can only retreat into the um, to the general statement that there are, in fact, a number of foods that we eat that uh, are, are are toxic in their in their wild form. I mean, cassava is the, the, the mainstay in Africa yeah. and other parts, and that's uh, that has to be treated very very carefully before you start eating it. Um, uh, you know, I I just have to tiptoe around the whole issue, really. I mean, nobody knows how it was that it came to be domesticated. Uh, one can um, one can create scenarios that suggest how it could have happened. I mean, the the potato is a highly variable plant in its in its natural state, and it's it's throwing up mutations all the time. And people will have observed. I mean, I, my supposition is that it was domesticated initially by hunter-gatherer groups in the high Andes, who were in that area principally hunting the the, the indigenous, indigenous uh, cameloids, the, you know, the llama and the alpaca and all that. Yeah. Uh, and will have noticed that um, these animals were digging up things and you know grubbing around, and that there were these tubers there. And they would have tasted them, and they would eventually perhaps have found some that were less toxic than others. And it has to be said, though, that, I mean, there are groups up there, the Aymara, uh, among whom there's, uh, there's a liking for the, for the sharp bitterness that uh, is indicative of the toxicity of these things. And the, and the um, wild potato. Yeah. Because the wild yeah. potato is, is, is known for, for its bitterness, is it not? Yes, yes. And also the the um, what they call the native potatoes, the ones uh, that grow highest in the um, in the Andes, up and above four thousand meters, um, where in fact the the glycoalkaloids are a kind of antifreeze in the potato. So I mean it. Oh really? It's okay. the potato. Yeah, it's the potato's means of actually surviving at those altitudes, and those even today are are um, are, are toxic to the extent that you 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 know they're. You, you don't eat those in their natural uh, natural state. They have to be. Um, they have. To, they are in fact freeze dried uh, into a into a kind of potato flour right. uh, that they call chuño, yes. uh, and becomes a soup thickener and uh, and so on. So it's sort of an all all purpose sort of starch, you could say. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yes. So where where did the potato originate? We're we're able to pinpoint it, are we not? Yes, roughly um, speaking. Yes, from the I mean, the, the recent DNA studies and so on um, of immense <laughs> complexity that I don't even pretend to understand. I just have a lot of respect for the people who uh, who have done the work um, have have nailed it down to uh, the the um, the southern end of Lake Titicaca around the you know the Bolivia Bolivia Peru border in that area, um, and there are I mean. Perhaps there's one thing to be said here is that the potato that we eat in uh, in the re- in in um, the, in Western the West, world yeah. in, in the east <laughs> um, is Solanum tuberosum, um, and that's um, a, a single species. And all the different potatoes that we have are merely varieties on that basic specific form. In the Andes, there are there are seven species of potato uh, that have been domesticated from thousands of wild variety but wild species yes um, and working with it's working with those seven um, they've been able to identify the ones that most probably were the precursors of 
Solanum tuberosum, which is the which is our potato, uh, which subsequently came to uh, came to Europe and has spread around the world. And I suppose that that brings us to how it first of all came to Europe, and uh, that was really from the uh, conquistadors, was it not? Well, they were the first. They were the first ones to to make a record of there being such a thing as a potato that people were eating in the in South America. But what's interesting is that um, I mean, and people have remarked on this many times that uh, they saw these things. I mean, there are very few. I mean, in in all the all the early literature that came out, the early accounts and records and so on that came out of South America. I mean, thousands of pages. Um, there are like people have, have found only I think it's like three or four paragraphs that actually include a mention. Oh, and they are eating a food uh, that, a bit like a truffle. They call it a, a papa, uh, and that's that's apparently the potato. And so many times it's been asked. Well, if they saw these things and they saw people eating them, uh, why didn't they just sort of latch onto this and bring it back to Europe? Because Europe in that time had had big problems with um, with feeding its populations, and but of course that in itself is the reason most of the Spaniards going to South America. I mean, Columbus went in was it 1492, mm. uh, but South America was um, settled in the in the 1520s, 1530s, yes. and by that time it was a regular route. I mean, they were already building ships on the Pacific coast. Uh, and sailing down, uh, and most of them, and there were thousands uh, coming to South America, were actually getting away from Spain. They were looking for a new life, and their major concern was to introduce Spanish and European crops to South America, such as wheat and oats, the cereals and so on, and cattle and pigs and dogs and all of that. Um, you know, they weren't interested in what the natives were eating. For one thing, the natives were dying in their thousands from um, smallpox. Uh, from smallpox and so yeah. forth. Um, nice way to clear the land, it, isn't it? I suppose. Yes, uh, <laughs> fortuitous way to to make the continents empty for uh, for colonization, didn't it? Well, that's exactly the way it worked out. Of course, mm. yes, yes. First of all, they were trying to make a little bit of maybe a little bit of Barcelona uh, uh, across the Atlantic, but uh, but also for as you say in the book, for centuries over ninety percent of all human activity was devoted to the production and distribution of food, and uh, yeah. the potato changed that in in a great way, did it not? When it, yes, yes. Once it once it got into Europe and and became uh, um, became accepted as a, as a staple food, I mean, it took over from from grain um, in a in a huge way. And this this um, this was sort of from the. I mean, it came initially at the end of the 1500s, and during the 1600s, there was a sort of rather sputtering of interest in it. Mainly, the main interest uh, uh, where it took on was in was in Ireland. During the during the 1600s, by the 1700s, it was a staple food all across all across Europe. Actually, uh, we'll we'll get to Ireland in a bit because that's obviously a very important yeah, that's a part, story John. In itself, yeah. um, it is, but well, one of there was a few things that held it up, and one of the interesting ones was this thing called the doctrine of signatures. And I was wondering if you could maybe just explain that to to us in in this day and age. Yeah, well, that was they were. 
the, those kinds of books, herbals and so forth, um, which uh, were a kind of um, household compendium of uh, what to do if somebody feels ill. Um, and the, the, the doctrine of signatures was uh, established by, uh, by a body of gentlemen who felt that they knew most about these things. Um, and they said that... Um, it, there's a, the, the cure for a plant, uh, the cure for an illness, uh, will be related, uh, will be found in plants somewhere, and it will be related in some way to the form of the plant, the similarity in form between the plant and the, uh, and, and the illness. This sort of a uh, cure most, by association, was it not? Well, that's a better way of putting it, yes, yeah. yes, by us, yes. Um, and, uh, the, the most outlandish of these was that um, you know, if there's, you know, if you've got something wrong with your head, anything from a headache, whatever, then um, be, then what you need is 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 something that comes from the walnut because the walnut has a uh, has a very 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 great deal of similarity in its form to the brain, so therefore that's going to work like that. I mean, the potato actually came off badly from this because it, the, the first potatoes which came to Europe um, the na- were, were not all nice and smooth and regular like ours. They are now. They had deep eyes and often lumps and protuberances and so on. And uh, so there was, uh, you know, there was a... <laughs> A tendency to look upon this as an indication of leprosy, um, which was pretty much um, pretty a, a rarity in Europe at the time. I mean, it, it wasn't, but people knew about it from the Bible, and there were horrible stories about it. And so, digging these things up out of, out of the ground with all lumps and knobs and holes and things in them uh, it, it induced the idea that um, eating them is likely to give you leprosy or carry on in that direction. Not very good PR, is it? <laughs> Not very good PR. Not no. very PR at all. However, the uh, potato did have some champions, and uh, uh, there was uh, now. Excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping. I might be jumping around in my time frame, so just correct me if I am. But uh, I think uh, probably the first or one of the the greatest, uh, one of those, and the most celebrated, certainly by the French, was uh, of course Antoine Augustine Parmentier. Was it not? Uh- Absolutely, yes, yes. He certainly, certainly in France, and, and and I don't think there was anybody to who did a similar role. Come to think of it, anywhere else. I mean, he he's he's unique, and his experience was um, during the, the 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 Franco-German wars, which of which there were a number during the late 18th century. Mm. Uh, he was captured by the Germans and uh, and imprisoned for three years. But he survived well on these on this diet, did he not? He did. Yeah. He did. And and um, and when the when when he was finally released um, in good health after three years on a diet that consisted very largely of, of potatoes, he went back to to France and saw this as a you know the potato as a means of um, of uh, feeding um, the the more impoverished sections of the community. But even then, there was reluctance to uh, to accept it. I mean, he he persuaded the authorities to allow him to um, to plant out several hectares of potatoes in close proximity to uh, an area where lots of um, lots of uh, working class people, uh, people who were short of food, lived. 
And in order to attract their attention, he put guards around it, um, keeping people away while the crop was growing. And this, of course, induced a, generated a lot of interest. Mm. What is this that they're putting? Um, it must be very then, valuable uh, indeed, mon Dieu. Yeah, mon Dieu. <laughs> mon Dieu, what are they doing there? There must be very... We must get some of these things that they are guarding. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. my God, mon Dieu, they've... <laughs> look at it. There's nobody there tonight. Oh, the guards Let's have gone. Go in. <laughs> yes. He's a clever... He was a very clever man, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah, he even got Marie Antoinette to, um, to, wear, um, to wear a garland of potato flowers in her hair at, a, at some state banquet or other. Um, which attracted uh, a lot of attention among the uh, <laughs> among the aristocracy. The well-to-do, um, yes, and yeah, and um, it, it created quite a scene with the the whole potato flower motif itself became immensely popular. Yes, that's yes, yes, with uh, uh, crockery. You, know, you had your plates decorated with potato. Well, the potato flower is. Uh, I mean, it's a nice. It's a nice in its various forms. You know, the the blue, deep blue, and, mm. uh, and white, and so on. It's uh, an attractive flower. And, and just one more thing about Parmentier, which uh, kind of gets me, is the fact that. He was obviously very astute because of what he did to popularize it with the peasants, obviously very political with the way that he was able to ingratiate himself with the monarchy, and yet also, again, very astute in that he was able to survive the terrors. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, went – it was appreciated by both sides. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it uh, – you know, nobody could deny that he was responsible for having introduced the peasants and so forth to the potato, mm. um, and and he'd advanced French science. Um, so you know he was protected on on both directions. Actually, having looked at this, his uh, later ruler Napoleon Bonaparte, apparently uh, Napoleon's favourite food when he was on campaign was roast potatoes and fried onions. And in fact, it was said that this calmed his stomach, and I don't know whether it was the alkaline nature of it, but Marshal Ney, who was with him for many, many years, said it was much easier to talk to him, being Napoleon, after he had eaten his favourite meal. Now, where did you dig that up? I, I, I'm going to put that in the next edition. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Didn't you? Um, I have a friend of mine who's a crazy military historian, and uh, uh, I, can, I can vouch for that. But, yes, Marshal Ney said it was much easier to talk to Napoleon once he had eaten his spuds. That's wonderful. That's mm. wonderful. Well, there you are. <laughs> but then moving on with the uh, – I was going to say there was another great um, person who was – uh, who wanted potatoes to be grown, but for a very different reason, and that was um, the very Prussian king, Frederick the Great. Well, he wanted them to grow because they were... Uh, he it was strategic, them. was it not? Uh, oh, yes, I guess you could say that. But, uh, I mean, he, he, um, he was aware that, that uh, an army living on potatoes um, was, uh, was going to be more healthy, one that was the one that was scrabbling around the countryside looking, looking for barns full of grain. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, there was the notorious uh, war of potato war when uh, down by the Elbe when the Austrian and uh, German forces were opposing each other across the river, neither able to gain any, any, um, any footing on the, on the other side, mm. uh, but both of them living off the 
potato harvests and um, staying there shouting at one another until they'd eaten all the potatoes, <laughs> at which point they, <laughs> they, they, they retreated and went back home. <laughs> ah, there's no more food. Um, but, but also it was interesting in the fact that um, potatoes were seen as a, a strategically a good crop to keep your um, the civilian population army alive because they're... When you were growing grain, the armies would come and rape and pillage as armies do. But with, if you grew potatoes under the ground, there was always a chance that you could have your civilian population survive better once they had moved on. Yes, yes. That, uh, yeah, they, I mean, it's much easier to take uh, raid the barn full of grain than it is to dig up a field of potatoes. Um, and that that was certainly true. And it and and um, in fact, uh, William McNeil, the eminent historian, has said that uh, people never died of starvation in war in Europe after the potatoes' arrival for that very reason that uh, they the crop was underground. They could they could I mean they could harrow off, remove the vegetation off the top completely. Uh, in other words. Say well, you know, part of potato. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see, uh, we don't have any potatoes yeah. here, um, <laughs> and then you better go and look over there. <laughs> yeah. um, but they, they would indeed have had them. And you're um, able to get. But I mean, what what this is all all about? I mean, at the at the bottom of all this is yes. that the potato is as a staple food is a much more productive and much more reliable crop mm. uh, than what Europe had been existing on previously, namely grains. Um, you know, a potato in itself is is uh, four times more productive in terms of uh, labour input and uh, land utilisation and so forth. Um, and if you if you eat enough potatoes uh, to satisfy your carbohydrate needs, you yes. get as much protein as you need. I mean, it's a it's the my phrase is it's the best bundle of nutrition known. So we have this great nourishing wonder crop and one of the first things it did was it allowed the population to grow and no more so than in Ireland which was just incredibly spectacular was it not it yes it was i mean it it's uh, the, the the early figure is is um, is always a is a bit bit edgy one never quite sure mm. uh, that in the 16 early 1600s there's something over 1 1.2 million 1.5 million people um 200 years later, in the 1840s, um, a census said, you know, there's over, ni- over 8 million people in Ireland. Um, and that, that um, I mean, the political um, uh, uh, milieu had an effect on, the, on it as well, of course. Mm. Um, but in fact, it's primarily because the, uh, uh, the, the nutritional qualities of the potato are uh, popular. It happened everywhere. Um, I mean, there are documents from, from India, um, from, from, uh, from Switzerland, and from Spain, all of which substantiate the, the, uh, this fact that uh, once the potato came in, uh, people were healthier, uh, more children were born, people lived longer. And there's also, I mean, it, it backfired in some ways because certainly in England and probably across into the continent as well, the fact that um, the Ireland when Irish were known for eating potatoes mm. and were producing so many children yes. um, gave it um, <laughs> gave it uh, the the reputation of being an aphrodisiac and uh, encouraging lascivious behaviour and so forth. Yes. Um, whereas, in fact, of course, what was happening was that people were were in better shape um, and more able to. Uh, 
you know, the potato would make a, make a ready gruel that, um, you know, um, supplemented uh, breast milk and so on. And so women, you know, would be conceiving more readily after having one child. And all of those things were feeding into it. So the potato was doing very well, but, I mean, it couldn't last. With, with this reliance on, on a one crop came trouble, did it not? Yes. Well, the, of course, the, the, what the, what the, another thing that was going on here mm. uh, was that the potato freed up grain to become um, uh, a negotiable commodity. I mean, it became a trade item. And also, this was a time during the late 1700s into the 1800s when international trade was becoming more important. And grain was something that people got rich on. Um, and the the corn laws in particularly in England uh, were, were were keeping prices of grain artificially high uh, uh, and creating a lot of wealth grain yes. was but then the potato came in and was now feeding feeding the poor so uh, if I may... which, which exacerbated that tendency here we were in Ireland and we uh, there is a monoculture that is happening which is uh, sowing the the seeds of doom excuse my clumsy puns here and then it happened. Um, a very, very wet growing period between in 1845, and what happened? Well, it, uh, that was the uh, the late blight arrived, mm. um, and late blight is. Uh, I mean, that's an, another fascinating story in itself, which I'll try and summarise. Um, I mean, it's a it's it's a fungus, Phytophthora infestans. Um, that uh, actually originated in uh, among wild potatoes in uh, in Mexico. Really, um, and uh, that's I mean, just in the last few years, its source has been traced down back to there. Wow. Um, and uh, somehow or other, it got into it was. It's all a bit hazy to begin with, but anyway, uh, the first the first recorded instances of of it attacking a, uh, attacking a plant. Um, Excuse me. Uh, was in on the east coast of America around Philadelphia in 1843, and in 1843 and 1844, it spread like wildfire all up the east coast and across to the lakes, uh, wiping out wiping out potatoes. I mean, it's um, it's a it's a, it's a very nasty little organ, microscopic organism it's, uh, it that gets in the cellular structure of the leaf. Um, and effectively, you know, eats it up. You know? um, I mean, somebody described it as uh, if you can imagine having a sort of uh, filaments of a, a very a fine sort of seaweed uh, getting into your lungs and eating up your lungs, um, and then coming out of your mouth to uh, produce these spore-bearing uh, pods, and then releasing its spores all over to go and infect somebody else. Then that's what the uh, uh, what the what the blight does to the potato. I had known about what it's the Gort Moor, isn't it? That uh, the the Great Famine, and I was under the misapprehension that the thing that caused this Great Famine was this reliance on the one potato, this thing called the lumper. And I had actually thought that the potato famine was just in Ireland, but it was not, was it? Not at all. No, no. It's. Um, I mean, it's a tragic tragedy how it came into Europe. It was a group of uh, Belgium farmers who. Uh, I mean, with, with, this is now the middle of the 18th century when, you know, plant botany and plant pathology. What goes wrong with plants? Yes. Um, you know, hadn't even been invented as a science. No. I mean, farmers knew 
that uh, things you know, went bad. Got wrong. Yeah. And they were inclined to, I mean, viruses were a particularly bad problem. Um, and that a few generations of, uh, of plants, of potatoes in particular, um, would, they'd, they'd become smaller, the leaves would be smaller, they wouldn't grow as well, they'd be stunted. And they thought this was because you were constantly inbreeding. You were, mm. you know, it was a weakening. Um, but, of course, we know now it was a virus. But anyway, a group of farmers in Belgium decided, well, we've got the only thing, we've, they were badly affected by this. The only thing we can do is bring in new stocks. So they ordered a new load of uh, seed potatoes yes. from the east coast of America in 1844. Oh, um, right. And you can guess what they came in with. Oh, yeah. Uh, among them was um, some, you know, infestation. So it was, it was seen in, among, in some parts of Belgium, uh, in that part of Belgium, in 1844 and not liked very much but then the following year 1845 when uh, the weather conditions I mean once it's in once once uh, it's in an area a region uh, Phytophthora infestans is all around it's in the air it's everywhere Mm. all it needs to get started on a field of potatoes is that the temperature doesn't fall below 10 degrees centigrade for 48 hours and that, it, and that the humidity remains above 75% for 48 hours. 48 if those hours. conditions prevail, yeah. uh, it will latch itself on, it will start multiplying on the leaves of a potato plant within seven days. 1845, it was rampant in Belgium. It, it spread in a sweep south and east and then round in France into Germany, uh, back up into the Netherlands. And in August of that year, it crossed the channel, and it was first in Kent, uh, and alarm bells started ringing. With the government, it needs to be said, first off, because by this time, the government was, was aware that uh, the potato was an impo- immensely important crop. Absolutely. And they had, a, they had a, a system of, in the autumn of every year, uh, the government agencies would assess what the uh, what the harvest prospects are to to know whether the you know the country is going to survive through yeah. the winter. Um, and so when the potatoes started being wiped out, they they were they got worried about this. It it was patchy in in England, uh, but it it spread across all the way across to the west, and then finally it got into into Ireland. Um, and it was, I think, in early in September that uh, that, that uh, alarm bells really started ringing loudly when it was announced that the blight is here uh, and the potato fields. And as it happens, uh, the the, um, the the lumper is exceptionally susceptible to uh, to blight. You know, once one of them once one of them got it, the next one did too, and 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 it just it just wiped out the entire crop within within a matter of weeks. I mean, there are heartbreak, heartrending accounts of oh, you know, that my, field, my field of potatoes were green and you know flourishing yesterday. I was looking forward to you oh, know, having a wonderful harvest today. They're gone. And and the effects of this are absolutely are far ranging and and awful. Well, one is that uh, about a million people um, died of starvation, and about a million people were forced to leave the country. Yes. And that continued for for generations afterwards. I mean, uh, Ireland's population went into decline at that point, um, and I think only stopped declining. I think in the last ten years that it's. I mean, it got down to four million or something, hovered around there, and I think it started going up again. 
marginally little now. But, and of course, that had its effect all around the world with uh, Irish immigrants going and uh, digging canals in South America and uh, coming to Australia. Way to Australia and coming gold. Yeah, and coming to the Americas and. Uh, and becoming yes. policemen in New York City, and yes, yes. <laughs> again, it's the uh, a, a social effect of of this this ball of of starch and protein, which is is quite extraordinary. Then also during the uh, the Industrial Revolution, it, it was seen that uh, the potato was had the ability to keep wages quite low too, didn't it? That's right. Yes, I mean uh, the. The only good thing you can say about the uh, about about the famine is that it it forced the British government to wipe out, do away with the Corn Laws, mm. and that's perhaps worth a, worth a comment. I mean, uh, the government actually, I mean, no government had ever been faced with a with a disaster of that order, and regardless of who, who was responsible for having precipitated it, initially set the circumstances up in which it happened. I think in the political economic situation yes. in Ireland, you know, the government did realize he's got to do something about it. And the first thing Peel, Robert Peel, who was Prime Minister at the time, was actually privately, without any any government approval, persuaded one of his banker friends to buy £100,000 worth of grain from America and ship it into Ireland and thereby setting in motion a relief program which which was not terribly well run uh, but i mean the, uh, the the heart was there if you like but um, they got the administration hopelessly screwed up but anyway uh, that meant that there was suddenly the grain bins of the world were being scoured grain futures yes. soared as dealers you know could see that the government was going going to be spending huge sums of money on grain to feed ireland not just for that year but for the next two or three years until some sort of food supply system got uh, re-established in Ireland. And as that was going on, you know, the, the, uh, the government and the, the anti-corn law um, protesters were, were not slow to point out, look, come on, you're, bringing, you're spending all these millions on grain, uh, yet you've still got these laws in place that require us to pay um, the uh, these exorbitant prices, unnatural prices for mm. it, and and indeed they, you know, they faced up to the reality and abolished the corn laws, which set up a free free market in grain, and and that was, um, I mean, a fundamental um, aspect of the whole free market development, and of course, as you were saying, at that around that time, I mean, it's just wonderful the way these you know, the, the the serendipity of these events come yes. on intrigues me all the time Unexpected, uh, yeah. the industrial revolution was getting along and that needed you know that needed labor and here you have in in, in europe in general uh, a, a very large rural population which has nothing to do in in parentheses i mean so they were drawn into um, into the labor supply of the factories and so on and enduring enduring all the horrors of that in the early days but again living on potatoes and adam smith complained that uh, you know the potatoes are a dreadful thing because it allows it allows um, uh, employers and industrialists uh, to keep the wages down because they know that the basic food is very cheap. Yes, another effect of, of, of this tumour. Now, it did take a while for um, a cure to be found. But we, we were talking before about the potato blight or, or late blight, which, uh, which you described so well and so horrifically. It took quite a while, first of all, to find out what had caused this and, uh, and then again a bit of serendipity to find a cure for it. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, when you read this stuff, of course, you know, the literature of the day, you're reading with hindsight. And, mm. and you, you say, well, come on, how can they be so bloody stupid? Yeah, you, you idiots. Know? Idiots. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, the, the science in, in, the, in the middle of the 19th century was, was, it's probably a bit unfair, but, I mean, uh, uh, 150 years later, perhaps we can appear a bit unfair. Yeah. Um, was was a sort of for gentlemen of leisure, a bit of a bit of a pastime. I mean, the Royal Agricultural Society was sort of a bit like a gentleman's club. Yes, yeah, so well um, in, well intentioned but fairly ineffectual. Yes, yeah. yes, and and uh, you know, looking forward to the show and who's got the biggest ox this year yeah. and, and and that sort of thing. And it it uh, ran a competition for essays on uh, on the blight uh, yeah. and what might be what causes it what might be done about it um but meantime there were some um some some oddballs who with microscopes who uh, who were looking at this thing and uh, they were you know they were people who were looking for looking at something new and wanting to be the first to describe it and so forth and an argument went on for for decades as to mm. as to what had caused this i hesitate to go in the, into the whole issue of spontaneous generation but that was basically what it was all about there were people who still believed that um, an illness uh, generates of itself within an organism is is not feeling well and it's weak and and it de- develops this thing or the, uh, the greatest the example that you give in the book was that uh, for instance maggots appeared as if by magic on on, right. on bad meat yes yes yeah. and that's you know that's understandable in in the days before microscopes you could only see what your eye would resolve well this was uh, the same days when they thought that swallows came from under the water or something like that didn't they I was, you're probably thinking of barnacle geese. Oh, yeah, uh, something like that. They disappeared from... They're named barnacle geese <laughs> yeah. because they were originally thought to uh, come out of the barnacles on uh, rotting wood, rotting wharves in, in, the, in, the, in the sea. But anyway, there was this argument about what it was that was causing this. So that was, that was the one thread of, of uh, interest and so scientific interest. And the other was, well, you know, okay, well, never mind what it is. What are we going to do about it? And one very interesting thing I found in the in the literature, which uh, is an indication of the way things develop, when it first came along, a fellow in Glamorgan, a copper smelting plant, wrote to one of the horticultural journals of the day, saying that he'd noticed that um, as he approached, if he as he approached the copper smelting plant uh, through various people's potato crops. Uh, he found that the ones closest to the plant were hardly affected at all mm. by the blight. Mm. Uh, now, isn't this amazing? And so the, the editor added, an, added a little note saying, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> but he yes. doesn't tell us what it is. Let's go uh, to the show. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Let's have a look um, at those cows, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, that single, single observation, actually, that copper has some effect mm. um, lay that particular one lay dormant no nobody paid any attention to it for 40 years mm. until a fellow by the name of Milladay in, uh, in a chemist French chemist who was working on grapes and the vines he'd had something to do with that phylloxia you know the one that wiped out the um, well yeah he had to the, deal with it with another the, sort of imported pest didn't he the, the that's bloody, right, bloody that's aphids right. in the in the in the rootstock yeah. That was him. Um, but anyway, he was he was travelling around um, Bur- the Burgundy region, um, mm. or maybe it was the Bordeaux. Forgive me if I Bordeaux. Got that. Yep. Was it Bordeaux? All right. Yep. Um, 
Yes, of course it was. We'll come to that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, anyway, he was he was down around that area, uh, going in in the uh, in the late summer. Look, uh, and he noticed that even the areas that were affected by uh, this other kind of blight, mm. um, the plants along the um, plants closest to the road were not. And furthermore, he noticed that they'd been they'd been sort of sprayed and smeared with a with a sort of white. Uh, bluish thing stuff yeah. so he went and asked about this and and was told by the um, by the vineyard owner that uh, yes well you know the trouble is with the grapes around here you know the people come and pinch them uh, but we found if we paint it with a mixture of lime and copper sulfate they look horrible i mean it doesn't affect the taste of the grapes at all but um, it stops people stealing them but what it was also doing of course was inhibiting the um, the, the the spread of this um, of this fungal infection yeah so he got to work on that and and realized that uh, you know this, these all these things are, have a great similarity in the way they 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 operate and found that um, a very dilute solution of copper salts would inhibit the development of uh, of the potato blight and thus we got um, as we were alluding to earlier uh, the bordeaux mixture yeah which uh, was it was a, that was a great now what was the chapter that you uh, i just have to read this back to you because I I thought it was kind of good. Where was it? The something of delight. Oh, help me! What was your chapter heading? The oh, um, they came. <laughs> the lonely impulse of delight. Um, I, impulse it was, <laughs> which was one of your chapters because I had heard about Bordeaux spray for many, many years, but I'd never realised when, whence it had come from. So I thank you very much for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so here you've got the, you know, the potato. Um, and because the potato crop was such a valuable one, mm. uh, the huge incentive to to now develop the means of controlling the disease that uh, is its worst enemy. Yes. Uh, so there's another huge in, uh, commercial industrial development generated, not least in the uh, you know effective spraying machines. I mean, the first I think was patented in 1890 or something. You know, nobody wants to go around with those little foot pumps. You know, those hand pumps spraying the, all their fields of potatoes. So now we need some mechanisation here. Yeah, we need a factory. We need workers. Yeah. And let's feed them on potatoes. And so you know, the cycles, the cycles <laughs> going away, again. And away we go. And you know. And it's okay. It's interesting. Let's do that. Where we talk about these cycles and these things of history repeating itself. Now it would appear because it's kind of topical now because I've been reading in the in the paper and on the wires and things like that of food riots which are happening at the moment as we speak, and food insecurity is happening again um, with, the, uh, with the world, it seems, not being able to feed itself. And, it, and yeah. it, it would appear that there is very much a changing consumption now with potatoes, and there is more and more potatoes being taken on by the developing world, is there not? There is, yes. It's, it's a matter of, I mean, we've got this grain fixation um, yeah. And 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 we've been brought up with the potato as you know, as I said earlier, you know, something that sits uh, soaking up the gravy. Mm. Um, but it's it's potential. I mean, it will grow anywhere. I mean, there, you you can develop a variety that will grow in Saudi Arabia, and you know, you're going to have to water it, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, and at, at four thousand meters, at um, you know, sub-zero, well, not sub-zero, but in the Arctic and and all over. I mean, it's 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 a it's a hugely adaptable. 
uh, crop. Um, and and for a for a small group a small group of people can um, you know can grow sufficient potatoes on a on a relatively small area of land. Mm. I mean, I worked out that um, you know if the, the Wembley Stadium here in London, you know, a quarter of it. If you cultivated potatoes on a quarter of it, yeah. that would feed a feed a feed a family of four for a year, and mm. give them an excess to to sell. So I mean, you know, Wembley Stadium could feed four people. And yeah. more families. Yeah, um, right. So, I mean, and and that potential is exists exists everywhere. The, the problem is one of uh, of dissemination, and and also, of course, um, traditional traditional habits. But but people have been taking it has been. Uh, well, look at China, in, for in instance. Hmm? Well, look at China. China. I'm looking at uh, um, the, the what is the United Nations International Year of the Potato website. I got the figure of that from. Uh, the top potato consumers in 2005, number one is China. Production, yes. Production. 75, 75 million tonnes, yes. Yeah. And that's achieved in, in, uh, in, in something like 25 or 30 years that so they've come from uh, you know, very low down the table, right up, right up to the top. And that's an instance of, um, you know, for better or for worse, what a, what a centrally controlled and very determined government can achieve. Mm. Uh, there has been, particularly in recent years, uh, a, a government directive, if you like, that, or realize, let's go back a stage, realization that mm. uh, China doesn't produce enough rice to, to feed its growing population. Yes. Um, and the world, furthermore, I mean, this is something they were saying five or six years ago, that the world, so, uh, furthermore, with its growing population, isn't anyway going to produce enough uh, enough rice for them to import to import it sufficient to to feed the population? Well, indeed, um, I mean we have seen the the price of uh, of rice, John, double uh, double in the last couple of years, has it not? That's in, it, yes, it's certainly doubled. Than that. I mean, certainly in, in 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 Europe, I mean the price of of wheat has has doubled in the last eighteen months. Yeah, uh, but that's to do with this biofuels issue, of course. Oh, well, that, and farmers, that's... Uh, farmers are getting you know there's a lot of incentive to to feed the bio uh, grow for the biofuel market, which is it's just ridiculous yeah. if you ask me. <laughs> It's, it's well, just, we could spend another half hour. Talking oh, we could. Yeah, we could. Just, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it, it, it's absurd. it's just madness. It's just yeah. com complete and utter madness. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. We really should uh, just tie this up into some sort of uh, <laughs> nice sort of knot. How about this? And now that we have seen potatoes girdle the globe, uh, you seem to like to use the word girdle because you talk a couple of times about potatoes and I think linen you talked about girdling the world. And now it would appear that potatoes will go into space when we have our first mission to Mars. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. Yes. I mean, NASA, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at their, their, their literature uh, web, on their website. I mean, the stuff that comes out of there, the kind of research that's going on, I think it's just wonderful that it's, that it's permitted and that there is money available to do it. But anyway, um, they have had uh, NASA uh, scientists have, uh, were presented some years ago with, uh, with the problem of, okay, if we send people to Mars, um, they're going to have to, well, what are we going to feed them on? And they, were, they developed this bioregenerative life support system, a prime part of which is, is the potato. Amazing. Uh, and the potato gains here because fully 80% of its biomass, of, of the growing plant's biomass, the whole thing leaves 
stalks, tubers, and on. 80% of it is edible. I mean, a grain will only, you know, it's something like 14 or 20%. Right. Um, so that's one of its first advantages. But to grow it, they developed an enclosed system such as could be constructed to go in a spacecraft, mm. uh, which could then be taken out and set up on, on the surface of Mars, which would be growing a whole uh, variety of crops, but prime among them as, um, as, as, as the stable food would be the potato. And the great thing about this is that if you grow enough potatoes to provide one person with the car its carbohydrate needs, uh, the growing plant will at the same time, its transpiration living process, will exhale the oxygen that person needs and when you switch the lights off during the night so to speak will absorb all the excess carbon dioxide that that person has put out into the atmosphere so uh, wow just, just wonderful uh, yeah uh, and, and i i sort of i like that i thought that was uh, that was that was and it's and it's good science you know i mean i can't claim to be the person to give the final word on it but the the people who do i mean it's published in peer-reviewed journals say yeah well can't can't argue this we might have we, we might argue or sort of express surprise that they don't talk about uh, if we go to mars that throughout it says when we go to mars we will be eating potatoes on the way and the potatoes will be providing the oxygen so yeah it's quite amazing that this uh, this humble little tuber from uh, uh, this species from around the the lake uh, Titicaca has what a journey it's had, absolutely, and what absolutely. a journey it continues to have, indeed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. And here's here's one that uh, let's talk about you. What's your favourite type of potato? Do you um, still like to eat I, spuds? Oh yeah, yes. In fact, um, I've I've got a whole load of them. I grow them. We we have an allotment, so I grow grow potatoes. Um, and in fact, we usually we we usually run out the last of them in in March and are forced to go down the supermarket and buy them. Um, and buying them, I uh, the only one I think that's that's um, really worth eating is King Edward's. What's um, that? Is it, that a red potato or a? It's it's white. It's got it's red 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 spots around the eyes. Yep. Um, it's a floury potato. You can boil it. You can bake M- it. It's, mash a, it. it's a really good. But to grow, it's it's another that's um, it's susceptible to blight. It's not a it's not an easy one to grow. So I grow I grow my the earlies we grow uh, Red Duke of York, uh, which matures very quickly. Last year I had I, we were eating them. Uh, 60 days after 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 I'd planted them. You plant them. You plant the earlies on St. Patrick's Day. You plant the main crop on St. George's Day. <laughs> and you, um, and it's funny that there's so many of your potatoes that are named after royalty. It seems. Yeah, I know. It's it's, it's, uh, it's people trying to endear themselves to. <laughs> you can almost <laughs> hear Elgar in the background. Why bother, but anyway, that was the case in the Victorian times. Yeah, I'm hearing pomp and and uh, and sustenance. I suppose you could say is playing in the background. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> pomp and sustenance. Yeah, that's what an excellent idea. <laughs> All right, John. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. The book we should give a plug for the book it is called oh we haven't even got into the title did we the propitious esculent um which is published by what is it uh, william heineman is it I think? william heineman yes the potato in world history is, yes. uh, is the subtitle and one that uh, uh well we can go into the title if you like well why not <laughs> tell us why was it called the propitious esculent well primarily because i didn't want to use the word 
potato uh, because everybody sort of laughs at it for mm. some reason. And I, I certainly didn't want to use the word spud. Yes. Because that always gets the word humble connect, oh, uh, humble, tagged yes. onto it. Yeah. Um, and in researching it, I came across uh, a reference to an early edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which described the potato as a demoralizing esculent. That was in respect of what it had done to the population of Ireland. Um, that uh, their troubles had been caused by their morals having been adversely affected by the potato. Um, anyway, an esculent is um, any any edible food stuff, uh, vegetable food stuff, and I, and, and I just think it's a nice word. But anyway, that was that was the encyclopedia. Then Mrs. Beaton, in her famous cookbook, uh, describes it as a most valuable esculent, and then she goes goes on to give some re- recipes of how you should use it and all that. Um, so I thought that was a nice sequence, and and so I said, well, what would you call? It? And propitious came to mind. I mean, it's full of hope. Yes. Help. I mean, it's a, it is, it's a, it's a wonderful little thing that doesn't make a fuss, uh, doesn't complain, just gets on with its job, just to do, give it what it needs, and and it'll reward us uh, many fold times over. Well, it certainly has, and it's uh, so propitious, esculent, the potato in world history. William. It's available in any good bookshop, I hope. Yes, come on. Come on, buy it. It's good. It's a good read. It certainly is. Well, look, it's uh, it's been a wonderful chat, and uh, we look forward. What's your next book going to be? What are you, what are you writing about now? Oh, that's a secret. Oh. So you can sign up. And you can, I'll send you a form for an advanced copy. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll, um, okay. I'll get your email address off air. Um, so hang on and we'll say our goodbyes and I'll leave you to enjoy what I hope is, uh, is a lovely spring, uh, over there in, in the UK. Thank you very much again. Thank you very much, Cameron. I've enjoyed talking to you a lot. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 